I noticed a month or so ago when Pastor John preached that he had his sleeves rolled up. And I figure if the youth pastor can do that, I can too. It's getting a little warm in here, isn't it? Anybody who thinks at all about the divine would probably be comfortable praying the opening words of this psalm. It begins by by simply saying, May God be merciful and bless us. May his face smile with favor upon us. I mean, everybody wants that, right? It is the universal prayer of anyone who has any interest in, in the divine, in God. How, whatever God people may worship, everyone is hoping, praying for the God they worship to bless them. And here in this psalm, we find that uh, the writer is, is telling us there's two things that they really hope the blessing involves. And one of them is mercy. There is a recognition that we need mercy. We are fallible people. We make mistakes. We mess up. We go astray. And we're hoping for mercy. Every one of us is hoping for that. We want that from people in our lives, but more than anything, we're hoping, counting on that from God. But he also says, he would, he's really praying that God's face will shine upon him. What he's really saying is, when God looks at us, I hope he's smiling and not frowning. Right? I mean, we all communicate with our faces. Sometimes when I look at you, I'm wondering what you're thinking as I'm, you know, looking at your faces. But I can kind of get a sense of whether you're agreeing with me or not. And we all do that with each other. We do it with our children. You know, I remember looks, you know, from my father, like, I'm in big trouble when church is over today. He was the pastor standing up here. And there were, you know, we, we do that with each other and we communicate with the, with the expressions on our faces. And we're hoping to get a smile. We're hoping to get a look from somebody we care about that will communicate to us, this is good. I like what you're doing. I'm I'm on board with this. And and this is a positive thing. Now, that that phrase is a part of the ironic blessing in Numbers chapter 6. And and it talks about, uh, it's the blessing that often we will hear, we pronounce it here in church often. Lots of churches use it. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. It is a, a benediction. It's a blessing. And that's one of the reasons why, as I've said to you before, when we come to this point in the service, I'm not looking for all of us to bow our heads because it's not really a prayer, it's a blessing. And I want to be able to look you in the eye and pronounce that blessing upon you. So you can see it and feel it and hear it. And if, you know, I don't know if it's possible for us to say this part of the worship service is my favorite. I don't know if that's, we should do that, but if if we could, that might be my favorite time of the service. And it's not because the sermon's done, I can relax a little bit, though I do feel that sometimes. And it's not because, hey, we're almost done. That was certainly my perspective as a child sitting in church. And it's not because we're about ready, we can almost time to have lunch. 
It's because there is such great joy in, in looking you in the eye and seeing you look back at me and say, God bless them. Let your face smile on this group of people throughout this week. And that's what the psalmist is praying. That's what all of us are hoping and praying. That, that because of our relationship with God, when he thinks about us, he smiles. What intrigues me about this psalm is that it is not just a prayer about us. It's not just a prayer about God's people. The psalmist is praying this very thing for everyone. Everyone. It's a bit surprising, to be honest with you, that that's what the psalm is saying. It's one of those psalms that probably sticks in the throat of a good Israelite. Lord, May your blessing, may your face shine upon the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Egyptians and the Philistines just as much as it's shining on us. That's a hard thing to pray sometimes. It's one of the great challenges of our faith. To say, Lord, bless them as much as you're blessing us. That's what the psalmist is saying from verse 2 on. That's the whole point of the psalm. And what do we discover? We discover that there is a chorus in this psalm, verses 3 and verse 5. Both say that they're exactly the same thing. The nations praise you, O God. Yes, all the na- may all the nations praise you. This is our prayer. It's the chorus of the psalm. And when you, you think about a song earlier when we sang, I know whom have believed. You get to the chorus. That's really the core of the song. That's really the song in in its summary. This is what the song is about. The verses lead us to that. But this is really what the the song is about. And the same thing is true here. The psalm is really about verses 3 and 5. It says, May the nations praise you, O God. May all the peoples of the earth praise you. And in that praising, know your blessing. And so in verse 2, he begins to break it down a little bit. In verse 2, he says, May your ways be known throughout the earth, your saving power among people everywhere. Why do the nations praise God? Because they have come to understand who God is. They all of a sudden realize this God of the God of Israel is not the same as the gods we've been worshiping. The God of Israel is compassionate and loving and gracious and true and faithful and trustworthy. And the gods that we worship are capricious. And envious and impatient and selfish and demanding. No wonder they're celebrating. They have begun to understand who God is. His ways, his nature, his character. That he is good and faithful and just and right. And his saving power. That he does great things. That he delivers from the slavery of sin. That he brings people out of difficulties and struggles. That there is nothing too great for this God. That's why they're celebrating him and praising him. And then you come to verse 4. And he breaks it down even more. And he talks about the whole world sing for joy because you govern the nations with justice. And you guide the people of the whole world. 
It's not just the nature and the character of who God is, but it's what God does that proves his nature and his character. And he talks about guiding them. This is a, a word that, and, and he talks about justice. And this idea of guiding them is really tied in with, uh, often with shepherding. It is leading the people like a shepherd. You know, in our North American culture, when we talk about moving animals from one place to another, we tend to drive them. In fact, we call it a cattle drive often. And you get behind them with horses and dogs and you drive them where they don't want to go. You force them to go that way. But in the Middle East, the shepherd doesn't drive the sheep, he leads the sheep. And so in John 10, Jesus talks about the sheep know my voice and so they follow me. And he goes out in front of the sheep and he leads them and they follow him wherever he's going to go. And the psalmist is saying, Lord, you are a God who guides, who leads. And, and Psalm 23 uses this word and talks about the Lord is my shepherd. And he leads us in paths of righteousness and by still waters. And even in the valley of the shadow of death, he is with us, leading us, guiding us, helping us. And the nations celebrate, sing for joy, because this is a different kind of God than they've ever experienced before. And you come to the other part of John 10 that we just read. And Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Here's the kind of shepherd that leads you. I'm the shepherd who lays down his life for you. I'm the shepherd who goes before you, leading you, guiding you, helping you, risking my own life for you. There is no concept of that kind of God in the other ancient nations around Israel. There is no concept of that kind of God among people anywhere who worship anyone other than our God. And when people begin to understand that and grasp that truth, no wonder you celebrate. This is good news. This is the gospel. This is what we're living for, we're hoping for. But it's also about justice. He says you are just, not just with Israel, but all the nations. And the reason they can say that with confidence is because justice isn't something God does. Justice is who God is. He doesn't have to manufacture justice. It is the nature of who God is. He cannot act in any other way than what is just and right. And when we talk about justice for all the world, it doesn't mean then that God is only cares about justice for the, these chosen people, for the people who have responded positively to him, for the people who say we follow him. It is justice for people everywhere, whether they follow him or not, because God cannot do anything else. And so when we read the scriptures, we find that God talks about justice, not just in Israel, but everywhere. And when Jesus says, this is how you, you'll know that one of the ways you know you're my disciples, this is how people will know that you're one of my followers, is how you treat people who the rest of the world manipulates and uses and takes advantage of, the most vulnerable. And the, his people say, well, when did we do any of those things? When did we bring cold water to people who were thirsty and food to people who were hungry and clothe the naked and visit people in prison? You know, when did we, when were we doing things for you, Jesus? He said, when you were doing all of that. And he says, doesn't say when you did it for my followers who are like that. 
He just said, when you did it, for anyone in need. So the question in my mind as I'm reading this psalm is this. How do the nations get to the place where they understand that's who God is? How does the world come to the place where they sing for joy because they have realized it's become clear to them that this is the nature and the character of God? How do you come to that place? How does the world understand that? And the only answer I can come up with is that they understand who God is by observing God's people. They look at God's people and ask, do they really believe that that's who God is? And even the deeper question is, do they live in such a way that it is clear they believe that's who God is? And that's the challenge for us. That we live in such a way that people say, boy, they really do believe that that's who God is. That God is good and gracious and faithful and loving and true and full of justice for everyone. If they don't see any of that in us, what would make them think that the God we worship has any of that in him? And that's our challenge. That's the struggle. That's the difficulty. That we live in such a way that people say, that must be what God is like. It's why the church is so important to our understanding of God. If we were to take a few moments and everyone would tell their story of how they came to faith, it would have something to do at some point in time with another believer. And if we were to talk about, through your life, what were some obstacles that you had to overcome? What were some difficulties that made it hard for you to come to faith? Probably, I, would, I want to say 100%, but you, know, you never know. But probably, every one of us would be able to tell stories when the church disappointed us and hurt us. And our understanding of God is so often shaped by our understanding of God's people. And that's the calling on us. And sometimes that happens in extraordinary circumstances. Sometimes we bear witness to who God is in in extraordinary, unusual times. I've I've mentioned to you before that Cindy and I enjoy watching uh, the Food Network. That may embarrass you. That may make you disappointed about me. But I do. I like watching the Food Network. Especially the cooking competitions. You learn a lot about how to, how to cook food uh, by watching the food competitions. doesn't mean I'm a better chef by any means, but I've learned some things. And one of the shows that we like to watch, and I know some of you do as well, because you've told me that, is the show Chopped. Uh, it is this, it's this show, weekly show of four professional chefs who come into this kitchen and uh, they are presented with a basket of mystery ingredients. And there are four things in there and typically they are unrelated to each other. And they have to, in the first round, they make an appetizer in 20 minutes and taking just the food that's in there and whatever they can find in the pantry. And at the end of that round, one of them is eliminated or chopped. 
And next round, they do the entree, and there are three of them. At the end of that, one of them is chopped. And you get down to the final two in the dessert round. And the winner of that round wins the prize, $10,000. I mean, it's a a significant competition. And they're the chopped champion. I remember about five years ago, we were watching one of these episodes. And one of the contestants, one of the chefs on the episode was clearly a Christian. He, uh, they, they do a little, some background on the people, the contestants, periodically as they weave it throughout the show. And they talk about where they work. And right off the bat, he was the chef at Camp of the Woods, which some of you know. Uh, Christian Camp in the Adirondacks. He's the chef at this Camp of the Woods. And uh, he talked about his faith. He talked about being a follower of Christ and how that impacted everything he did. And you could tell that being a chef at the Camp of the Woods was, you know, a sacrificial decision for him to make. And all throughout the competitions are showing us, we, both Cindy and I were saying, man, he's really presenting a good witness. He's humble, he's compassionate, he's kind. And as each round went along, he kept winning. And you get down to the last round, a dessert round, and he and a woman who was originally from France had immigrated to the U.S. not that many years before... And, she, and they were telling her story. And they always asked them, if you win, what will you do with the money? And she said, well, my grandmother raised me. She's still in France, and she is nearing the end of her life. And I would use this money to go and visit her. Take some vacation, buy a ticket, go to France, see her one more time. So they get to the end of the dessert round. They submit their dishes. They come back in, and when they pull up the, the cloche over the dish, and whoever's dish is under the cloche loses, they pull up the, the cloche, and she lost. Lance won. And, uh, of course, she's disappointed, and they tell her what a great chef she is and, you know, what a great job she did. And uh, she thanks them, and uh, she starts walking away, and Lance says, um, wait a minute. And the host is like, what's going on here? Nobody says, wait a minute. They just start jumping up and down. I won. He says, wait a minute. And he called her back and he said, he looked at her and said, I didn't expect to win. I wasn't counting on the money. You really need to go see your grandmother. I I want to give you my prize so you can buy the ticket to go visit your grandmother. And of course, she broke down in tears and she's hugging him. And some of the judges are in tears. Cindy and I are watching. We're in tears. And, you know, it, it is this profound moment. And quite frankly, the host and the judges didn't really know what to do with that. They just sort of looked at each other and thought, I don't know what to say. And in that moment, I thought, what a phenomenal witness about not just what it means to be a Christian, but who God is and what he does in a person's life and how he cares about things in our lives. And sometimes there are those extraordinary moments That God gives us where we can do these kinds of things. But here's what I'm discovering. Most of the time, it's the ordinary moments. When we more often reveal who God is in us. It is in the everyday moments that people see God in us. A couple of years ago, Eugene Peterson wrote a little article in a publication I read that he simply titled, The Ministry of Small Talk. And in this article, he talks about being a pastor and how he always felt this urge, this drive, this guilt that every conversation with people in the church and outside the church was spiritual. Every single conversation had to be about Jesus, had to be about God, had to be about what's happening in your life spiritually. Where are you going? What are you doing? What are you struggling with? Every conversation was about that. And he said, 
it began to dawn on him that a couple of things. One is those conversations were less successful than he wanted them to be. And he also realized that as he typically tried to avoid small talk, how small talk among people connected them. It's life. And the more he pondered that, the more he realized that there is great value in just engaging people in small talk. That everything doesn't have to be some monumental spiritual moment. Now, do we get to the place where we talk to people about those things? Of course we do. But what he discovered is that when we engage in small talk, when we engage in just ordinary life with people, we build relationships that make people much more open to those deeper conversations. And you think about it. I mean, if you're like me, I I felt that same guilt often. That I need to be engaging in something deeper, something more. But what we're doing is building relationships. And it's really what we see in Jesus. Jesus just eating with people, having conversations with them. And most of what Jesus says is because someone asks him a question. Because someone makes a statement and Jesus is able to build on that. Even in the passage read from John, it's the Pharisees and their behavior that triggers what Jesus says. And engaging in small talk does a couple of things. One is it reminds us that when when all we want to do is have those deep conversations, then our conversations are about our agenda. And we're always pushing our agenda. And so our, every conversation comes, becomes primarily about me. What I want, what I want to say, how I want to say it, when I want to say it. How can I convince you to listen to me? How can I convince you to do what I want? To think of this conversation in ways that I want you to think about them. Whereas when we just relax and engage in small talk, the conversation can be about both of us. And the conversation can then be about what's important to you and what are you, what are you going through and what, how's life? And you start talking about seemingly inane things like how's your garden or the report that you just finished at work or the television show you saw last night or the movie you saw last week or whatever the case may be. But all of it is a way of honoring and respecting other people and saying, my life is just not about me. It's about us. And I want to know about your life. I want to build relationship with you. And I'm convinced that when we do that, then God provides the moments for the deeper conversations. And quite frankly, I have found people are much more interested in having those conversations because I'm much more interested not just in my agenda, but in them. It's building bridges, connecting. I was reading, I think it's something about that that's, that it seems to me at least might be something about the introductory words to this psalm. I was reading this week through the passage a number of times and all of a sudden it struck me that the psalmist says this is a psalm that should be sung accompanied by stringed instruments. And I thought, well, why would that matter? Of course, we don't know the melodies of the songs as they're sung, but this specifically was about a psalm for stringed instruments. And there are 14 times in the psalms, 150 psalms, and only 14 of them say this should be sung to the accompaniment of stringed instruments. So it's a special type of of accompaniment. 
And so I decided I better do some research about this. And here's what I discovered. Nobody has a clue. (laughs) Nobody knows. But in the course of that research, I did discover something about a perspective that the church has had at various points in its history about instrumental music in worship. And the reformers, particularly, were against instrumental music in worship because for them, the only thing that mattered about the singing were the words. The melodies were a distraction. All that mattered were the words. And so you sing them without musical instruments so that you don't get distracted. And that was based on a perspective in the early church where many in the early church said we should not use musical instruments in our worship. But the reason they said that was because their primary connection to musical instruments were the pagan temples around them. And they didn't want anyone to confuse their worship of Christ with the worship of, of Diana or Zeus. And in the pagan temples, the instrumental music was often used to build people into a frenzy, an ecstatic kind of state, and even into sometimes an erotic state. And so they wanted to to make sure there was distance about that. But by the time you get to the Middle Ages and even beyond into our time, that's really not the case anymore. The fear is not syncretism anymore. Because, quite frankly, we can, we can make syncretistic anything in our culture. I mean, there were people who felt that, that it was a mistake to, to in any way blend radio and Christianity. And then television and Christianity and movies and Christianity. And yet, when you look at, at, through history, those have been powerful tools. Yes, there are problems with them, but they also can be used for good. And it made me wonder if something like using stringed instruments in worship, instead of worrying about it being something that might, might be confused, what if it's a connecting point to people's lives? What if it's a way for people who come to worship to say, oh, I recognize that. There's something about that that resonates with me. This is a place where I have at least a small level of comfort. And it makes me much more able and willing to listen to what else is happening in worship. That's really all we're talking about. We're talking about thinking about other people and making connections with them. And what this psalm is really asking of us is this, that we pray, our prayer is, Lord, we want you to do for everyone else what we want you to do for us. How we want you to treat us is exactly how we want you to treat everyone else. And in verse 6, he talks about the abundant harvest. We want you to be merciful toward us, and we want you to be merciful toward them. We want you to give us an abundant harvest, and we want you to give the Babylonians and the Assyrians and all the pagans around us a bountiful harvest. Because we don't want to create and, and build a spirit of animosity. We want to build a spirit of love. And even if we completely disagree with them, even if we completely disagree with the way they view you and the way they view life and the way they practice life, we want you to bless them. Because every time we pray that prayer, it creates more and more of a spirit of love for them like you have. And that's why it was important for Israel to sing this psalm. And that's why it's important for us to sing this psalm. To remind us again and again and again 
that people around us are not the enemy. They're people who've just not yet discovered who God is. And we have the great privilege of being channels of helping them understand that. It really is resonating what God says to Abraham in Genesis 12. He says, I'm calling you out. I'm going to bless your life. I'm going to build a great nation out of you for one reason. And that is so that through you, the whole earth will be blessed. I'm going to show people through in you what I, who I am and what I can do with people who are surrendered to me so that all the rest of the world will look at that and say, that's what we want to. If that's the kind of God he is, we want that in our lives also. So if we th- as we think about person, a group of people, someone who we might find it difficult to sing this song about them, to ask God to just continue to soften our hearts so that when we sing this psalm and we have those people in mind or that person in mind or the group of people in mind, we're saying, Lord, Do for them what I want you to do for me. And just keep working on my heart so that when people look at me and look at us, they might get a clearer picture of you. And then the prayer that we pray is realized. Ultimately, when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom, it will be realized. But between then and now, we are channels, catalysts for people to experience the joy and the blessing of God today. They don't have to wait till then to sing songs of joy, but can sing them now. We're going to take just a moment of silence to think about that person, that group of people, and ask for God to give us the grace, the want to, to pray this prayer about them as God calls Israel to pray it about their world. Father, we pray that you will open our eyes, our minds, our hearts. That we might want for the whole world what we want for ourselves. That our lives bring honor and glory to you and And through your spirit, open the eyes of others to who you are. We pray this.
through Jesus. Amen.